Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. And here's what's on the show. Countering Islamophobia in New York. Trump's latest effort to kill Obamacare and what it means for you. And Brick's 2017 Jazz Fest happening now. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. It's really cold outside today. I was not prepared for the cold. How's everybody doing over there? We are great. Excited to be here. Excited? Yeah. Cold? Anybody cold as well? <laughs> we're cold in here. <laughs> well, we're really excited to be here for our pilot episode. It's a new daily news and culture show, broadcast and podcast, the only one about and from Brooklyn, America's fourth largest city, if we were our own city, which of course we all think we are. We've got a great lineup. Zahira Lee from the Brooklyn Historical Society is going to talk to us about past and present Islamophobia in America and what the society is doing to counter it. And then Jordan Weissman, business and economics correspondent for Slate, will help us understand Trump's latest effort to destroy Obamacare after the president signed two seemingly devastating executive orders late last week. And finally, we've got BRIC's Vice President for Performing Arts, Jack Walsh, here to tell us about BRIC's third Jazz Fest, starting Thursday with headliners Maceo Parker and the Sun Ra Orchestra, among others. But first, a few things. Puerto Rico, four weeks after Hurricane Maria hit, despite what the president believes or knows, yes, they pay federal taxes down there. Yes, they enlist in the U.S. military, and so yes, they're entitled to federal assistance. And yes, on much of the island, they're still struggling to get basic necessities like power, water, and medicine. Brooklynites are pitching in to help, stocking the Arctic Sunrise, a Greenpeace boat that's due to depart from Brooklyn on Tuesday. But it's unclear if we'll be able to reach port because it's registered in the Netherlands, meaning it could be in violation of the Jones Act, which is now back in force after Trump granted a brief waiver that's since been allowed to expire. It just gets better, right? Fair beating has long been a pipeline to prison for minority youth in the city. Though DAs say they're no longer prosecuting this misdemeanor at the rate they used to, it's still being enforced. And according to a new study by the Community Service Society, enforced in a discriminatory fashion. Nearly 90% of arrests for turnstile jumping in 2017 have been of young African-American men between 15 and 18 years old. CSS contends this is because Enforcement is focused almost exclusively in poor minority neighborhoods. Even if they only receive a summons, if they can't pay the $2.75 for the subway fare, they certainly can't afford the $100 ticket. And then comes a warrant, and then comes arrest, and you know how it goes from there. Did you know that Bushwick is home to New York's most intimate and exclusive bar? Featured recently in The New Yorker, New York Times, and Gothamist, the threesome toll booth is located in an undisclosed supply closet. How'd it get its name? Well, only you, your date, and the bartender can fit at a reported rate of $100 to $120 per person per hour. It was the brainchild of Indy Austin, who famously opened a speakeasy in, Chelsea, in a Chelsea water tower back in 2013. Care for a cocktail with your claustrophobia? This next conversation was recorded minutes before a judge in Hawaii blocked the third version of Donald Trump's travel ban. This is the latest version of a ban on entry into the U.S. for nationals of predominantly Muslim countries. 
Though this version includes other countries like Venezuela and North Korea, the order is still perceived as a Muslim ban. On Monday, Brooklyn artists and activists gathered at Borough Hall to protest through dance. Here's a little snippet. Today we have the Stop the Muslim Ban Action protest in which we used dance as a form of resistance against the travel ban that the Trump administration is going to implement this Wednesday, October 18th. We're here to use dance to symbolically stomp out hatred, Islamophobia. Zahir Ali is the oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society, which has just received a grant to begin a two-year project that aims to counter many of the stereotypical narratives about Muslims that are prominent in much of American media. We welcome Zahir to talk to us about the project and the history of Islam in America, and in Brooklyn in particular. So here, tell me a little bit more about the Brooklyn Historical Society. So Brooklyn Historical Society was established in 1863. Um, it is an urban history center located in Brooklyn Heights, um, looking at the past and present of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And as oral historian, I have the great fortune of having the job of collecting, recording, curating the lived memories and testimonies of Brooklynites from all walks of life. And so as part of that, um, you know, we, we, I do some projects that are focused on particular specific themes, and sometimes I just interview people as part of being an oral historian. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's really like, um, I think it's like a blessing to like sit and listen to, it's like some people get to, you, you study history, you read about it, but to actually talk to people and hear their lived experience expressed in their own words, with their own inflections, with their emotions, mm -hmm. it, it can be a really moving thing. I can get that, I can really get that. One of the things that has a lot of people talking right now, especially in regards to uh, Muslim folks and Muslim identity is Trump's Muslim ban. Yes. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about like, what is this ban and what do you think motivates it? So, you know, I think, and we're in the third version of, mm -hmm. of the ban, which is scheduled to go into effect, I think this week. Mm -hmm. Wednesday. Um, and the, um, you know, the, the initial expression of the idea of a ban came during his campaign, mm -hmm. where he said, you know, Donald Trump will ban Muslims. And it was a broad statement, and it clearly reflected the spirit in which he intended this to happen. So when mm -hmm. they finally articulated the, the, the law, or the executive order, mm -hmm. um, and this, this idea about like we, um, you know, these select countries, um, it, the, the countries that were selected reflected that spirit, that this mm -hmm. was targeting Muslims. The way it was um, implemented reflected that spirit, that it was targeting Muslims. And it was no surprise. Um, we were happy and thankful. I mean, I think all Americans were thankful that this um, ban was struck down by so many right. courts. Um, and so then they came out with version two, which was also reflecting the same spirit. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that was, you know, similarly stalled. And so uh, trying to head off uh, this going before the Supreme Court, which would have killed the idea completely right. as being, um, you know, not in 
cons not consistent with the, the, the spirit of the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to kind of head this off, they, they presented band, number, band version three. Right, um, with countries, added countries, yes, Venezuela. Yes, they added Venezuela, they North added Korea. North Korea, they mm -hmm. added Chad. Right. People were like, what? Chad? Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, all of those countries, with the exception of, of North Korea and Venezuela, have significant or majority Muslim populations. Mm -hmm. um, the addition of North Korea and Venezuela are kind of red herrings because, in effect, it might ban maybe 10 people total. Mm -hmm. based on the way that the ban is worded. So this is still a ban on Muslims from these countries. Um, there are countries that are not on this list that are majority Muslim, uh, and that the, you know, the government has used that as an excuse to say, well, we're not targeting Muslims. Right. But the, the excuse that we're targeting, you know, or we, this is a, a national security interest, well, if you want to talk about national security and you talk they about, talk about yeah, they want to talk about national security, <laughs> because if you look at like the, um, let's say the hijackers who right. were responsible for 9-11, the majority of them came from Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm not one of the banned countries, right? right? Um, the majority of terrorist attacks in the United States, first of all, are not committed by Muslims in the, you know, since 9-11. But the ones that are committed by people who claim that Islam is somehow you know, their identity or their cause, uh, were American citizens or American residents, would not have been banned in this ban. So that this is really a rhetorical um, you know, kind of, uh, gift. Yeah, it's ineffective, and it's really something that he's just kind of throwing. It's, it's like red meat to his base. It's yes, a dog. Whistle. Exactly. Exactly. So, can you tell me a little bit about um, Muslims in Brooklyn specifically and some of the history there? Because yeah. I saw some really interesting things. Yeah, so the thing, you know, one of the things that I think is important to kind of counter this Islamophobia and counter this idea that Muslims need to be kept out is to say Muslims are here. Right. Muslims are here. Muslims have been here for a very long time. Muslims are a diverse group of people. There's mm -hmm. You can't pin is Muslims to any particular nationality or ethnicity. Um, and Muslims have shaped American life and Brooklyn life as much as Brooklyn has shaped the lives of Muslims. Right. So some of the, you know, we know that, for example, the earliest Muslims came to this land uh, as enslaved people. Right. And so even before there was a United States of America, Muslims were here, right? Um, we know that this is documented. If you go to the African burial ground in, in New York and Manhattan, mm -hmm. um, there are, there's evidence that some of the enslaved people uh, that were buried in the, in the African burial ground were Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing research right now to see how that you know, plays out in Brooklyn in terms right. of that early but we know that in the 20th century, some of the earliest established communities were as early as in the 1910s and 20s. One, wow. In fact, one of the earliest Muslim communities in Brooklyn were Russian Tartars who settled in wow. Williamsburg and established a house of worship that was once a church that was then once a Democratic Party clubhouse, and this became a place of worship. And they established the Mohammedan American or the American Mohammedan Society mm -hmm. and had their Eid festivals, which was the, you know, the Holy Day festivals for Muslims right. as early as the 1920s and 30s. And then there's wow. another community that was established um, in downtown or Brooklyn Heights on State Street. And this was established um, by a Afro-Caribbean Muslim named Sheikh Dawood Ahmed Faisal. Mm -hmm. 
and he established what was one of the first, what we would call Sunni or Orthodox traditional Muslim communities so, in, 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 in New York City. So Brooklyn has like really important histories of Muslims. And people it. have no, like a lot of people would never like think to look that up or wouldn't, or they don't know that that information is there. How is your project specifically helping to solve that problem? Yes, so our project is designed to, you know, one of the things about oral history mm -hmm. is oral history was developed to um, compensate or make up for the silences and absences in the historical archive. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, there are people who, because of their lack of privilege or lack of power, are not documented in the same way um, that, you know, the kind of conventional people are in the archive through letters and correspondence and, and the like. And so oral history is a way to create an archive. Mm -hmm. And so with the project Muslims in Brooklyn, our goal is to create an archive of the histories of Muslims in Brooklyn um, through oral histories, and if people have things that they think document the histories that they would like to give to us, we're happy to explore that as well. Um, but the idea is to create an, a repository of these, uh, I wanna do at least 50 oral mm -hmm. histories in the coming year, which is ambitious, but we're excited to do it. Um, covering the full kind of diversity of neighborhoods, uh, demographic diversity, age, gender, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality. Um, the idea is to bring forward the stories of Muslims told in their own words, mm -hmm. in their own voices, and center that to help um, acquaint people with the lives of Muslims in Brooklyn. So if there are people in the audience right now who want to share those stories with you and want to reach out to you to contribute to that project, what do they need to do? Uh, well, you should check out our website. It's at brooklynhistory.org forward slash Muslims in Brooklyn is the project website, and you can email. Mm -hmm. um, if you think your story would be interesting or you know someone whose story would be interesting, um, you can email us at oralhistory at brooklynhistory.org. That sounds amazing. I hope you get some hits from that. I hope people reach Thank out you. to you. Thank you, we're looking forward to it. And we're looking forward to coming back as we complete phases of this project. It's gonna be oral histories, mm -hmm. an exhibition, a, a series of public programs, a night of performing arts, um, a curriculum for schools. So we have a lot that we wanna share as we continue with this project. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for being here to hear. Stay with us for important information about Obamacare and its future. Late last week, Donald Trump signed two executive orders aimed at destroying Obamacare once and for all. On Monday, he called it dead and said we shouldn't even talk about it anymore. Where does that leave those who depend on the changes brought by the Affordable Care Act, including the nearly half million in Brooklyn who might be affected by this turn of events? For clarity, we turn to Jordan Weissman, business and economics correspondent at Slate. Jordan, welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, can you just tell us what happened last Thursday? Yeah, um, I, I think I should preface it, though, by saying Obamacare is not dead. Yeah. <laughs> first and foremost. Good to know. It's, like, it's, been, a, it's been a strange several days uh, mm -hmm. for the law and for the U.S. healthcare system that's had a lot of people kind of tearing their hair out trying to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. But the law is still alive. If you rely on um, the Affordable Care Act's exchanges to get your health insurance, um, you will still be able to get health insurance through them this open enrollment period. Um, but so what happened was uh, Donald Trump uh, signed these two executive orders. Um, 
both of which were designed in their own sort of unique ways to, I, I think, were designed to undermine Obamacare the way it works. One of which um, was sort of complicated and um, a little less important, I would say, but it involved these things called association health plans, and it was essentially a way to try to deregulate uh, the insurance industry going forward. But it's mm -hmm. not clear how much of an impact that will have. It was a change very much favored by Rand Paul. That sort of became a, a secondary story. Mm -hmm. um, after Trump also announced that he was going to stop paying these very, very important subsidies that go to insurance known as cost-sharing reduction payments. Um, and for a long time, healthcare wonks used to refer to this as Trump's nuclear option. Right. <laughs> for, for, wow. Yeah, all right. So for months and months, Trump would say, Obamacare is imploding. It's going to die on its own. And this, this was always actually code for, I'm going to try and uh, bomb Obamacare into smithereens once and for all by cutting off these payments. Um, and the reason these are so important is there's this um, part of the law that requires insurers to uh, essentially give discounts mm. uh, on their out-of-pocket costs, things like co-pays and their... Uh, you know, co-insurance to lower income customers. Um, and they have to do that. They are, you, if you have, make less than 250% of the poverty line, um, you have to get a certain, you can get a certain kind of silver plan. Right. Um, and in return, the federal government sends them these subsidy payments to cover the cost. Um, there's been this whole big court case challenging the way that whether or not money was properly appropriated for them without getting too much into the weeds. Donald Trump had the opportunity to essentially stop making these payments to insurers. And the idea, a lot of people were worried that if that money dried up, insurers were just going to flee the exchanges. They were going to bolt. They were going to bolt. And that was going to be, that was going to bring the whole thing crashing down. Uh, and so then on Thursday night, Friday, last week, mm -hmm. all of a sudden after threatening it for at least more than six months, I started writing about <laughs> it and bringing this up. Uh, it finally happened. However, the story gets a little bit more complicated after that. So one of the things that people keep bringing up, or at least that I keep saying, is that the timing is yeah. particularly damaging. Why is that? Well, so I'll, this again, this is you can go so far into the, the nuts and bolts and gritty parts of this, but uh, essentially a lot of insurers had already um, set their rates for the year, and they had gone through the process, they had signed their contracts, and so it wasn't clear at the time whether or not they'd be able to redo their rates in order mm. to take into account the fact that this money wasn't going to be there. Now it looks like um, the, the Department of Health and Human Services is going to let them do that. Um, mm. So the timing might be less damaging. But the story gets even more kind of baroque. And again, I think the big picture thing to keep in mind here is that in the end, people realized that killing these subsidies probably wasn't going to destroy Obamacare. It was going to make it really weird and nonsensical. Right. <laughs> and it was, going, right. was basically the outcome of it. What, as analysts look closer at that, what they realized is it was going to cost the government a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But because of the way Obamacare subsidies work and the way they're designed, um, it, unless you did not receive any subsidies at all, mm -hmm. um, your, the cost of your health insurance probably wasn't going to change. And so a lot of people could probably still come to the exchanges mm -hmm. and get their health care, get their health insurance just as before. Mm -hmm. um, but the system was going to be very, very bizarre. And in the way it was kind of going to become, it was almost going to become a Rube Goldberg device for delivering right. health insurance to Americans. But then it goes from there. It looks like there might be a bipartisan deal suddenly to fix all of this. 
I would. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? About this bipartisan deal? Yeah. So the long, strange trip continued on, yeah. <laughs> on Tuesday. Um, so for a while, there have been these kind of quiet negotiations going mm -hmm. on in Congress between Senators Patty Murray of Washington and Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee, to come up with some sort of bipartisan Obamacare stabilization bill. Mm -hmm. And briefly, that went out the window. When uh, it looks like Republicans right, might really repeal Obamacare, that mm -hmm. all kind of got jumped. Right. Um, but when Republicans saw that, basically when, when they realized they, they couldn't do it, they couldn't repeal it, these talks started up again. And one of the key things to realize is that a lot of Republicans didn't want Trump to end these subsidies because right. they were worried about the political ramifications of it. Of course. Some people, some places that, you know, might lose their insurers, some people might see the cost of their insurance go up. Um, and so uh, they decided to restart the talks. And all of a sudden on Tuesday, they struck a deal. So their question is, can they actually get the votes for it? But there is at least some bargain to um, pay these subsidies. Again. So there's a shot. There's a shot. There's a shot that this could work out. Yeah. How does this affect New Yorkers specifically, or even Brooklynites specifically? You know, we mm -hmm. seem to have a local government that is very much, you know, behind Obamacare and behind preserving yes. um, these subsidies and also some of the more like popular objectives of Obamacare. Yeah, New York um, has been incredibly supportive of Obamacare and that's, and frankly, states that have gone along with the program and tried to make it work have done a better job making it work. Right. Have had more success with it. Um, and New York was one of the states that saw Trump's warnings or mm -hmm. saw, you know, Trump's, you know, heard Trump muttering about ending these subsidies right. and said, you know, we should plan ahead for this. And so what some states did was they let their insurers set their rates assuming that um, the, the, these subsidy payments would end mm -hmm. so that they'd be prepared. Right. Um, and New York did something called, it's called silver loading. Let's, mm -hmm. let, let's not, but they, they allowed them to do something, essentially to raise the cost of certain kinds of plans to make sure that, um, you know, insurers weren't going to end up on the hook for any costs. Okay. You know, individual New Yorkers, um, I think in the end, some people, who, again, who don't get those government uh, tax credits to buy coverage, mm -hmm. will end up paying more for their insurance basically because of Donald Trump's hijinks over the past wow. six months. Um, but it should be available to everybody. Good. That's good that it should be available to everybody because Lord knows a lot of people are going to need it. Thank you so much for doing this and for being here with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Still to come. BRIC's third annual Jazz Fest, coming up later this week. Take a listen. Now in its third year, BRIC's Jazz Fest has blown up with a week of programming to include film, dance, panel discussion, and of course, live jazz music. Starting on Thursday, BRIC presents a three-night live music marathon, featuring some of the most exciting global legends in jazz, as well as emerging local artists. And it's all happening right here at Brick. Here to talk to us about the fest is one of the curators and founders, Jack Walsh. Welcome, Jack. Hi, thank you. So, Jack, we are in the third year of the Jazz Fest. Can you talk to me a little bit about the beginning of it? Sure. Well, um, you know, Brick has been around for almost 40 years, and uh, but we opened this building, Brick House, uh, four years ago, mm -hmm. and. Um, we really, uh, in planning for the opening of the building, wanted to create some uh, tentpole programming, programming that would really be anchors in a season year after year. 
And um, so we had been thinking about um, what that might be. And for, you know, for a while, people were thinking like jazz is dead, you know, was, uh, but in the last few years, it has just, um, just reignited in a way that's so uh, amazing. And here in New York, there's been so much uh, happening that, uh, and, and I have some history in having produced some jazz back in the day, and I thought, you know, this might be the time. So uh, we gave it a try. We got very lucky in our first year. It worked out really well. We caught Kamasi Washington on his way up. And that really helped sort of plant the flag for us in that first year uh, just three years ago. Wow. So what's Brooklyn's connection to jazz? Because I think a lot of people, when they think about jazz, don't automatically think about Brooklyn. But we have an interesting history here, we, right? We do. Uh, it's interesting. I know a little bit about some of the artists who called Brooklyn home. And um, you know, I've been producing the Brick Celebrate Brooklyn Festival in Prospect Park for a long time mm -hmm. and was involved with it way back when, in fact, it was a home for Brooklyn's jazz artists. Um, you know, This was Betty Carter. Um, Dewey Redman, uh, just so many of them that lived right here in Brooklyn. And um, so we, and, and even then, this is back in the 80s, uh, these were artists who were still performing and active at that time, but had also a history and had been around for a while and were sort of elders in some ways at that time and played places that I don't know as much about, but there's a whole history of uh, sort of Brooklyn jazz shrines, uh, wow. places like the Putnam up on Fulton Street mm -hmm. where you know Miles Davis played and things like that. So Brooklyn has real jazz roots. Um, wow. And uh, you know, we're not playing on that too much here with the Brick Jazz Fest, but it, it certainly is a place that has, and I think is, uh, you know, central to what's happening with jazz now. Who are some of the acts you're most excited to see? Oh, well, I thought you'd ask that question, so I, <laughs> I brought a little list that I thought viewers uh, would be a, a sort of a good uh, mix of things to share with viewers. Hit so us with it. We have 26 ensembles over three nights, wow. and there are three stages in the building. So the, the construct is that you can come and move from stage to stage and actually catch pieces of sets, mm -hmm. or you can sit down and just enjoy a full set, and each night of Thursday night, there are nine ensembles. Friday night, nine ensembles. Saturday night, there are eight. And so some highlights. Um, Thursday, Terry Lynn Carrington, social science. Terry is a fantastic drummer. She's played with everybody. I mean, um, you know, she's played with Herbie Hancock. She's played with Chaka Khan. She's just an amazing powerhouse of a percussionist mm -hmm. and a, really a go-to uh, musician. She's got. She's fronting her own band. It's sort of a collective. Really amazing and a, mm -hmm. and a really fierce woman on on the lineup. Miles Mosley is out of the whole West Coast LA scene that Kamasi Washington came out of. Wow. He's the bassist. He was actually here two years ago, um, three years ago with uh, Kamasi. Um, and then we closed Thursday night with the Sun Ra Orchestra, yeah. uh, led by Miles, uh, by, um, oh goodness, I'm gonna forget his name. But, uh, you know, Sun Ra, the sort of, you know, Afrofuturist uh, who just sort of, you know, had this philosophy about music that was, you know, just amazing. And so to uh, keep that alive is great. Friday night, a great lineup uh, capped off with Regina Carter. Uh, she's a fantastic violinist who's reimagining the music of Ella Fitzgerald. And then Saturday night is just chock full of highlights. Uh, and we close with uh, Maceo Parker on Saturday night. Um, Maceo, you know, played with uh, George Clinton, James mm -hmm. Brown, Prince. 
uh, he is the, the alto saxophonist. It, it's like the funkiest thing you could ever listen <laughs> it to. It sounds like it's going to be amazing. How, how do people get tickets? So uh, there are uh, tickets, you know, we've really tried to make this very accessible. Mm -hmm. So uh, any one of these artists is somebody you would go to and see and be at least $25 each. Mm -hmm. Each night is only $25. So you get wow. nine, eight or nine acts for $25 each night. There is a three-day pass that you can buy for all three nights and save some money. And then day of show, it's just a little bit more expensive when you walk up, it's $30. It's all available online at brickartsmedia.org or you can just walk up to the box office if we're not sell, sold mm -hmm. out. And uh, we really want to invite everybody to come down. It's, it's going to be fantastic. We're very excited about it. And I think the lineup is the strongest we've had in the three years. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Jack. This was really informative and actually really exciting. I'm a little bit excited to be done with this so that I can run and go buy tickets. Thank you so much for joining us on 112BK. If your friends missed the show, tell them to tune into the podcast on SoundCloud. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our audio engineer is Eric Haugaseg. Executive producers are Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 